Well, I'm pleased to be joined today by Larry Wellickson, who is the founding chief executive officer of the Society of Hospital Medicine. Larry, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So, Larry, I know you're retiring this year, and I have to say you picked a fascinating year to retire. Was that planned? No, I, uh, uh, I've i been doing this for 20 years, uh, that, uh, that I was uh, turning 70, and uh, I thought that uh, this was a good time to make a handoff. I think if I was smarter, I would have retired last year, but uh, it is an interesting time uh, to, to do a transition. I guess as a starting point, um, there's so many different directions we could go in, but I, I maybe let's just stay with this year. Um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic and the discussions around systemic racism, how have they affected um, SHM as an organization and hospital medicine as a field? Well, you know, I mean, that's a very complicated question, but I would tell you that, you know, we there are 60,000 hospitalists and we are on the front lines uh, of, of this uh, pandemic. And interestingly enough, uh, I had a conversation with some of the people that founded this specialty thinking, how the heck would this country have even dealt with this back in the old days with uh, when acute care was managed as a sideline for people who were primarily office-based. But the, the issues that have come up, it, it's, it's, it's put on steroids things like telehealth and our thinking about social determinants uh, of, of care, like poverty and access to care and nutrition and living conditions. But it's created additional problems. Uh, we're now facing, uh, we, we're a relatively young specialty. The average age of a hospitalist is 37. Uh, but uh, we're starting to see PTSD uh, kind of issues. Uh, as you might imagine, hospitalists probably would see on in the past two deaths a month on their service, and some of them were seeing six deaths a day. So, uh, so that's been sort of the upshot, uh, you know. And uh, I think, uh, as an organization, as you might imagine, in a young specialty, that it is not all older white males. And so we've been, even with us, we've been dealing with it. But I think uh, it has just sort of lifted a scab, if you will, uh, and, and forced uh, conversations uh, to the forefront uh, that, that, that probably are long overdue. And I think there's always a disconnect in a, in a young specialty between the race and gender of the doctor versus the race and gender of their of their patients. And, and once again, this may, has, may have uncovered things and happy to talk about this more in detail. So we're not immune to these problems. It's created new opportunities as well as new problems. Well, and one of the things that's always impressed me about SHM is because it's, it's a relatively new organization around a new specialty, you don't have a lot of what I'll call legacy systems or programs that, that older organizations have and older specialties have. How but you also don't have kind of the experience, if you will, or the, the history with these types of, of seminal events. How is how is this situation changed your thinking in terms of both the role of the society, but also the role of the specialty? Well, you know, I, I think one of the advantages we have, uh, which I talk about frequently, is in the early years, we had no reputation to protect. And uh, it allows us, we, our, it, it, we, we never 
think, and we still certainly don't think 20 years later, that we have arrived. We, we are not establishment. And so we are actually much more like a dot-com company or a Silicon Valley company where we expect things to change. So, so we were, we didn't know what it was going to be. We didn't know it was going to be a pandemic and racial unrest, but we always expect that, that, that we don't get settled. And so, so almost immediately on our special interest groups that talk to each other, uh, virtually, uh, that, that people almost on day one of these events were talking about, okay, here's how we need to modify how we approach things. And so I think it actually has made it easier uh, for us to have discussions. Also, we don't usually think we have all of the answers. We're happy if we have some of the answers. And we have seen coming a major reorganization of healthcare. Uh, some people are looking at it as population health, and uh, we're looking at it. Uh, we've most of our doctors have always been employed, uh, but we're looking at you know the intrusion of of Amazon and Walmart and CVS, and we think that the response to the pandemic of, of sort of shaking everything up and uh, and creating an opportunity to reinvent things uh, plays into both the culture of hospital medicine, the fact that we're not set and we're ready to evolve, uh, and, and create, gives us certain opportunities because we believe that not every specialty that has been successful in the way things were done are going to be in the same position. The disadvantage in the short term is that because you were employed, it was very easy for some employer to just cut our uh, compensation by 10%. So there's some short-term pain, but uh, we think in the long term, we're, we're sort of set for the evolution that's clearly coming. And as part of that evolution, and as you mentioned, employed physicians, um, I know there's a large sort of private equity play in hospital medicine. How has that affected the specialty, but also the, the society? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting, as you know, uh, that that people from companies from your world have come over. Frenzius uh, was an owner of of, of a company uh, that uh, that employed, I think, over three thousand hospitalists at one time, and uh, it, it is both an opportunity and and a two edged sword. I, th I think for physicians, it it is always important to have clarity. Of, of, of who decides what a good outcome is. Uh, and I've always felt, uh, and I certainly have been on the venture capital side of things, that, that as a physician, you must start with the basis that if it's good for your patient, it's probably good for the company you work for. Uh, that being said, that isn't always uh, the case in how it feels on a day-to-day -day operations. But uh, I, like I said, I think our young physicians, by and large, have come into a world where they've always been working for somebody, the hospital or a, a venture capital-backed or equity company, uh, and so they don't know any different. Uh, and uh, it's sort of like if you were born into a place where you were living on a commune rather than in a single family home. That's just the only life you've ever known. So I think we're prepared to navigate that. What happens is not uncommonly, our doctors who started as a frontline worker move into management. And, and I think as more of our doctors become CEOs of hospitals or chief medical officers of these companies, they bring with them their experience on the front lines. So 
I think it's it is a world that we live in, and we just have to figure out how do we continue moving forward in that world. So you mentioned nephrology. I'm just curious as to how hospitalists or how the sort of hospital medicine community views nephrology and how you see the two specialties evolving over the next five to ten years. Yeah. So so I think what what's happened with nephrology and many other certainly medical subspecialties is that that one of the drivers of hospital medicine has been that most specialties have wanted to concentrate on what they're good at and to some extent what makes them the most money. And so cardiologists have been happy to have us admit their chest pains and they can concentrate on doing the invasive procedures. And I think to some extent, uh, I would be, I would be surprised if it, most inpatient nephrology isn't being done by hospitalists on the more difficult and complicated cases, certainly involving a nephrologist as a consultation, but very often the hospitalist is a primary care doctor, which allows the nephrologist to be freed up to do dialysis, manage end-stage renal disease, and to do things that they they can control. Because it's very inefficient for most specialties to come in, into the hospital for very few patients where the compensation isn't nearly as good. So I think what we've seen is that we we need to have an expertise in the management of the acute aspects of renal disease uh, and, and and then obviously use them like we use most other specialties when we get sort of over our head to call them in. Uh, but I, I would bet you that most hospitalists probably see nephrology as an outpatient specialty uh, the way we view rheumatology or uh, or endocrinology. So just kind of picking up on that and trying to link it to where we started when you were saying that, that it would be hard to imagine the current pandemic without having hospitalists on the front lines. Can you just be appreciate if you could just sort of provide the, the history of hospital medicine and how we kind of got to this point in the specialty? Right. So when I showed up, uh, uh, bumped into hospital medicine uh, back in the late 90s. There were a couple hundred hospitalists, uh, maybe less than a thousand, and it was being driven at that time a little bit by by managed care, uh, wanting to wanting to have sort of their own admitting force, if you will. Uh, and there's now 60,000 hospitalists, and uh, the driving forces early on were number one that certainly family medicine docs and many general internists uh, would be just as happy not to come to the hospital. Like I said, they made more money per per hour in their office. Uh, the taking care of, of sick people is more complicated. It was getting hard to keep up with two sets of literature. But very quickly over time, the subspecialty community, uh, the, certainly the cardiologists and the pulmonary guys, et cetera, found that, boy, they would offload the stuff they didn't want to do, uh, like the admitting out of the ER. And so all that drove hospital medicine. And then you had another factor, which was there was a real move to efficient and effective care, reducing lengths of stay, reducing use of resources, especially in those places where there was managed care or people were taking taking risk. And so the when the hospitals would take on risk for their inpatient care uh, and eventually for their nursing home care, that they wanted a set group of people 
that they had some relationship with, either as a contract or employment, and that became hospitalists so that they could begin to drive down the use of resources. And then you throw in the mix that insurance companies began to see this as a real advantage for them. So primary care doctors, subspecialists, insurance companies, CMOs of hospitals, all wanting to, to, to take away the fact that at a given hospital, 600 different people could admit a pneumonia and bring it down to a smaller management, managed group. That drove the early years of, of hospital medicine and the rapid growth, uh, which grew uh, much quicker than, than, say, emergency medicine grew, uh, where we went from, you know, family medicine guys in the ER to now we would find it unusual hospital where we would not have hospitalists or ED docs. So in the beginning, the society was called the National Association of Inpatient Physicians. And I'm just curious as to what happened, what sort of um, precipitated the name change. Well, a couple things. Number one, uh, I think we wanted to de- we wanted to define a new specialty. So, hospital medicine, sort of like critical care medicine, or or you know, emergency medicine, and and we felt that that we were doing the acute care. And and really, even now, hospital medicine might not be correct with hospitals at home and our major role in in nursing homes and LTACs. Uh, that we really should be the Society of Acute Care Medicine, but we're hospital medicine for for the time being. But in addition, uh, that that it became very clear we were not just physicians. So we have a strong membership of nurse practitioners and PAs. We have pharmacists. We really early on saw that inpatient care was a team sport and that that rather than have separate and sometimes competing organizations representing the nurse practitioners in in hospital medicine or the pharmacists in hospital medicine, we created a big tent. Uh, And this was intentional, and this has required the physicians uh, who tend to want to hold the power, et cetera, to really be inclusive, and it's changed sort of the way that our organization has has functioned. So we have non-physicians on virtually every committee. They're on the board. They can run. They can be president of the organization. Uh, so it really was an attempt to broaden our scope, define a specialty, and also to recognize that we're part of a big tent team. So as you look back over the last 20 years, what's your biggest regret or what mistake do you feel has been the one that, that just you you never forget about well uh sometimes i'm sorry that that we didn't early on create our own uh training programs and specialties so as you remember uh, anybody who's listening to this that that emergency care started out being under surgery and internal medicine and as a new specialty of emergency medicine came about they developed their own residencies and their own departments of emergency medicine and eventually their own certification. Uh, and hospitalists are, are, are family medicine docs, internists primarily, and pediatricians, med peds, and each of them have their individual training programs. And in fact, one of my big uh, regrets is that the internal medicine training program for new residents which become hospitalists hasn't changed very much since I was a resident 47 years ago. And and there are so many things, whether it's population health or risk management or quality improvement, 
and that I am certain that if there was separate hospital medicine departments, a separate board certification for hospital medicine, that we would be better training hospitalists for that career. Now, the good news is one of the main reasons that people set up separate departments and separate boards is to attract medical students into their specialty. And we've had no trouble with that. Uh, but uh, early on, our academicians did not want to take on the very powerful internal medicine department to try to carve out their own specialty. And, uh, you know, I wish we had tackled that early on, uh, but uh, like that ship has sort of sailed. So it's interesting you ended by saying you, you think that ship has sailed because I could make the argument, and, and you and I first met when I was working for the the quote-unquote powerful departments of internal medicine. And, and so you could make the argument from, let's just say, nephrology's perspective, but also some of the other specialties you mentioned, like endocrinology, that one way that, that internal medicine in the future could look more like surgery where um, st- medical students have an opportunity to match directly into fellowships or into hospital medicine, if that's what they're thinking of in terms of their career, but it sounds like you don't think that's a likely future. Well, yeah, like I said, I I, I think academic uh, medicine is an anachronistic uh, uh, kind of world that is not connected to reality. It, it'll be interesting to see when Amazon and Walmart are a big factor in healthcare if they don't change it. I think everybody knows that Kaiser became so unhappy with the kind of residents that were being turned out that they created their own residencies and actually in California have created their own medical school. Uh, and it'll take some external force. The academicians on their own aren't going to wake up and do do what, what their consumer, which is the end, the, the trained nephrologist or the trained uh, hospitalist says to them. In fact, they don't even survey I don't know how it is in nephrology, but they've never surveyed any hospitalists to ask them whether their training was adequate for the career they picked. So there's no feedback loop. But I agree. I mean, I think that that it seems anachronistic that that everybody has to flow through three years of internal medicine. And I don't know how you feel about nephrology, but you certainly could train a cardiologist in less than uh, seven years out of medical school. And uh, and one way to do that is to have people match right out of medical school into cardiology, nephrology, or hospital medicine. Uh, but I, I just don't see the tipping point of how how that's going to drive because right now that decision is a, is totally in the control of academicians and to some extent the boards, and there's no driver to force them to change. Well, and, and what we're finding, and, and I anticipate we'll get some criticism for these comments, but but what I, what we have found is we've approached both the, the ABIM and the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education is there's a little bit of a, a vicious cycle in the sense that it's not clear where you start. So if, if you and I came to them and said, we have this great idea, we want to create a program that's going to create um, I'll call them nephrohospitalists. You can call them hospital nephrologists. But the, the point is, we think there's a there's a there's a need for a patient population. We think there's a lot of interest from employers and from health systems, and we think that it would be best for patient care if we came forward. It wouldn't be. It's not clear what the first step would be. 
Um, and and I, I would anticipate that, you know, we started this conversation talking about COVID-19, um, I think is, is we're forced to reevaluate our educational systems, including academic medicine. And as there will be changes, I think, in terms of how we handle, um, you know, undergraduate, graduate medical education, I could see real pressures to, to try to experiment and pilot some of, you know, some of these, these new sort of innovative approaches. Well, I mean, I, look, I, I think at the end of the day, one of the drivers is are people selecting to go into that specialty? Right now, in order to get into some of these subspecialties, it's, it's, it's a barrier, you know, to go through internal medicine and it increases the debt load. And as you know, uh, that part of this is also the need for medical schools to provide the service they need to to the catchment area, very often in poverty areas, under underfunded areas for healthcare. So there's there's many there's many different factors. You know, one of the scenarios you could imagine is I suspect when when uh, all of these equity firms and commercial enterprises get into healthcare, I think the aggregate of what physicians get paid will go down. And in the end, uh, that that will make it harder to justify being in debt and having such a long training cycle. Uh, so it's very inefficient. Uh, you know, uh, we'll see whether it happens in my lifetime. I've got another 25 years. Uh, it may change. But uh, like I said, as you mentioned, it's not even clear where the entry point is to bring a new idea forward to to do a pilot program. But, you know, I, I think the current system is not serving the population or the people that select that career well, and there's a better way to do it. So, you know, I'd asked you about your, your biggest disappointment. What are you most proud of? I, I am unbelievably humble by the hundreds, maybe it could be thousands of people who I have interacted with where I have had a positive influence on their careers. Uh, one of the things about retiring is it's sort of like going to your own funeral while you're still alive. And uh, one of the things I did for myself is I, I wrote about two or 300 letters to people that I've met along the way. And, uh, and, and it made me realize uh, that, uh, you know, people keep coming up to me and saying, you met me when I was a resident at the University of Chicago, and you, I became a hospitalist, and now I'm on the board of the ABIM, or, you know, you talked to me when I was a frontline hospitalist, and now I'm chief medical officer uh, of, of my health system. And uh, I think it is an unbelievable, and I think those in your audience who are who are academicians probably appreciate that, but uh, the, the ability for people to look back on your interactions and to remember something big or small that you did for them or with them and can look back and say to you, you had a positive influence on my career, my marriage, uh, my relationship with my children. Uh, and and that is, it's, it's just an unbelievable feeling, you know, and, uh, uh, and uh, the, the fact that you can recognize the tangibility of that is way better than any money you earned or any plaques you have hanging on your wall, uh, et cetera. And I, and I think it's interesting because it's very similar to the feelings I had when I left clinical practice was that running in to patients, you know, years later who would tell you, you know, I was sick and went to the hospital and thought I was going to die and, you know, you treated me or you know, or when my mother died, you came out and talked to me. I think it always comes back, Todd, to your interaction with people 
is so much more deep and intimate than things you've created, buildings you've built, you know, organizations you've run, power you've had. So that's it's it's a good feeling, and you can tell by the way I talk about it. It really is a, a tangible thing. Well, Larry, I I was one of the recipients of of one of those letters, and and uh, you know I happened to get home from vacation, and and it was in the mail, and I opened it, and um, I shared it with Allison, my wife, who you know, and and we talked about just how important you've been to me, um, both professionally as a mentor and just someone that I could bounce ideas off of, and you and I have always, as you said in the letter, have been completely transparent with each other, but we've also been comfortable having discussions that that sometimes drifted into areas that would make perhaps others a little uncomfortable. But more importantly, you've been personally someone who's I've sought out advice both about my career, but also just about how I live my life and the kind of person I want to be. And I know you have um, your own children, so I appreciate you sort of adopting me as a, as a, as a fourth son. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think the piece people I want to convey in, in this interview and in, in this conversation is for whatever reason, you and I have spent a lot of time in meetings. And in the first, when we first met in the late nineties, it was rewriting the constitution of internal medicine that ACP ASIM had, had, had sponsored. And now we both sit on the board of the council of medical specialty societies and we always manage to sit next to each other. We always manage to entertain each other, but I always come away from those discussions and those meetings with a list of ideas. And, you know, I get home and, and half the ideas are, are bizarre and crazy and, and not, workable, but, but there's always a handful that are just terrific. And I think they've made ASN better. And, and before that, I think they made the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine better, but ultimately you made me better. And, and, and I just can't thank you enough. And, and I know I speak for a lot of people. And, and again, there's probably some comments in this discussion that will upset some people, but I think if they take a step back and look at the bigger picture, um, you've been a really positive force for hospital medicine, internal medicine, and the broader sort of medicine in this country. So just thank you for everything. You're so kind, you know, and it. I think it's a two-way street. You know, I always, I try to tell my children that very often when you give somebody a gift, if it's the right gift, that you feel better as the giver than the person who receives it. And, and that's sort of the way our relationship has been. And sometimes it's hard to tell who is giving and who is receiving. Uh, and I think if people can get to that, you know, I, I firmly believe my kids all went into teaching. And I firmly believe that they saw in, in, in my life that, that there, there's an opportunity for almost any, almost everybody has something they can share with somebody else. And, uh, and I think that's what makes life special and rich. And so uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I know you and I, uh, you are not going to be defined by what our jobs are. So this is, uh, this, is, this is a very nice thing to do on the last day that I'm the CEO of SHM. It's a very nice gift for me. It's, it's a gift for us as well. So thank you for taking the time and congratulations on a remarkable career. And I look forward to working with you on CMSS for the next couple of years. And I'm sure we'll continue to come up with um, half-baked ideas that, that may ultimately you know, turn into something real. So thank you for everything.